So we have reached chapter six and seven in our Esther series this afternoon where the wicked Haman gets his comeuppance and Esther and Mordecai for the first time are finally safe. I've entitled our time this afternoon an ordinary yet extraordinary deliverance. Hopefully, that will become clear. Um, But let me introduce these chapters first of all. We've just read them together by saying, you know this now, um, that this part of the story is very fast, very funny, and also full of coincidences. I say it's fast because the dramatic twist of the whole book, it actually reaches back into chapter 5, that Ian helpfully... um, walked us through last week chapter 5 6 and 7 all happen over one incredible day I was thinking about this during the week and a song came to me there's a famous old song written in the 1930s that's called what a difference a day makes it's been covered loads of times it's been in so many films and um, I've got a little clip of it let's see if this works if the tech works this is Diana Ross What a difference a day makes Twenty-four little hours Oh man, it's so smooth that, isn't it? What a difference a day makes Twenty-four little hours How true that will be That song sums up these three chapters Diana Ross wasn't alive when this was happening What a shame But here's the thing about that. This book actually, as you know now, has been a slow burner for nine years. Not that we've been preaching through it for nine years. Nine years have passed. The king banished his first queen and then went to fight in Greece. That covered four years. Esther has then been queen now for about five years. So this is like a slow roller coaster building to the horrible climax of this death sentence on all the Jews but after these nine confusing and painful years the tables are suddenly turned in 24 hours and it goes like lightning everyone in this narrative is rushing about trying to get stuff done there are two sumptuous banquets there's one sleepless night gallows are built royal meetings are held at dawn People seem in such a hurry that they completely misunderstand each other. It's also very fast. But chapter 6 is also a contender for what one writer calls the funniest scene in the whole Bible. It is almost cartoonish. Haman does his absolute best to big himself up and to crush his enemy but accidentally ends up having to personally honour his enemy before destroying himself. The embarrassment of Haman is totally hilarious at first and then ultimately tragic as he is impaled on the very spike he's just built for Mordecai not a few hours before. What a difference a day makes. I won't sing it for you. But it's not just fast and funny, it's the coincidences 
random things just seem to happen at exactly the right moment as things escalate to a conclusion that is totally outside of Haman's control. And I want to pause at the beginning now because that is the exact question that this narrative is not so subtly asking us. Who is in control in this empire? Over all these nine years and over this particular 24 hours and over the lives of these specific people, who is in control? Well, let's get into these two chapters then. I have three headings and then three takeaways at the end. But three headings, first of all, as we walk through. And this is the first, the trigger for this ordinary yet extraordinary deliverance. Two different sleepless nights. Chapter 6 actually begins with a big surprise. On this night of all nights, the king can't sleep. And actually, chapter 6, verse 1, is the exact middle verse of the whole book. So we could say that the entire book actually is cleverly built around the king's random insomnia. (laughs) The whole book hinges on this pivot point. This is the trigger that sets everything else in motion. We're not told why he couldn't sleep. Maybe the banquet with Esther the day before had intrigued him somehow. What was her question? Was she all right? Maybe he was worried about her. The author doesn't tell us. We don't know. But the king is sat bolt upright and he can't sleep. What what do you do if you can't sleep? I've occasionally had some sleepless nights. Generally, I'll go downstairs and make a cup of tea. What, What would you do if you can't sleep? He could have gone for a walk. He could have had something to eat or drink. But coincidence number two here is that he just so happens to ask for the chronicles to be brought in and read to him. Now, it's hard to know whether this is for entertainment purposes or for sedation. (laughs) The, The author doesn't say that. I don't know if this is the equivalent of watching Netflix or whether it's designed to lull him off to sleep. Just read it in the most boring voice you can, and hopefully I'll nod off eventually. I, I don't know. Some, some commentators have suggested that maybe the king is trying to cheer himself up here by listening to all the stories of his great achievements and success, with all the failures, no doubt, edited out. Coincidence number three is that it just so happens that the attendant reads from the year... 479 BC and in verse 2 we see that this makes the king prick up his ears now we already know that five years earlier than this Mordecai had saved the king's life when he overheard a plot to assassinate the king and it was recorded in the chronicles 
And the fact that he didn't get any recognition for this at the time has been silently waiting in the background for five years. And it just so happens that it comes to light now on this sleepless night. Now, apparently, I'm told, the, the idea of rewarding loyalty was a big deal in the Persian Empire. I, I suppose the idea of punishing criminals was a big thing as well. The, the idea that if you did something bad, you'd be punished. If you did something good, you, you would be honoured by the king. And this has been accidentally overlooked. That's why the king pricks up his ears and he interrupts and asks out loud in verse 3, what honour and recognition did Mordecai receive for this? And the answer comes back, um, uh, none, your majesty. <laughs> and, and the king then immediately asks, this is now maybe 5 a.m. in the morning. Coincidence number four is that the king then asks, who's in the court? Now, this, this fits with what we know of this king. And this king has never done anything in this book so far that somebody else didn't tell him to do. He, he doesn't seem capable of making his own mind up, so he's looking for an advisor to tell him, how can I honour Mordecai? Coincidence number five. <laughs> we'll lose count in a minute. It just so happens that Haman has arrived this early in the morning. And this brings us neatly to the other sleepless night that is implied in the text. Yesterday, Esther had held her first banquet with the king and Haman. And Haman was so thrilled to find himself best friends with the king and queen. But on his way home, he had bumped into Mordecai, which reminded him that Mordecai still refused to bow down to him, and so he arrives home furious. And to calm him down, at the end of chapter 5, his wife and his friends suggest that he build a huge gallows or pole to sort out this Mordecai problem once and for all. After all, those who resisted his spectacular authority deserved a spectacular death. But look again at verse 14 of the end of chapter 5. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching up to a height of 50 cubits, 23 meters, 75 feet. And ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and endure yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman and he had the pole set up. So actually we find that Mordecai hasn't really slept either. The end of verse 14 says he was delighted. He did it straight away. He must have gathered his best Persian carpenters. Do you know any of those? And pulled a night shift. When the gallows were complete, maybe he snatched a quick nap, got changed. But Haman goes to the palace very early in the morning because he wants to be in the front of the queue to see the king 
And he wants today to be a good day. And now the comedy really begins. Secondly, the irony. This part here is about two different agendas. Early on this morning, the king and Haman have two totally different agendas. We know this as readers, but they've got absolutely no idea what the other one's thinking. As the king says, bring him in, in verse 5, the king's thinking, how can I honour Mordecai? But as Haman, as Haman enters, he's thinking, how can I get the king to agree to impale Mordecai on the spike that I've just sent the night building? And I want you to realise something here, that as Haman saunters into the palace court, no doubt whistling a happy tune, Mordecai is literally at this point a couple of hours away from being executed. I, I think it's very possible that the king would have agreed to this if it were not for his sleepless night and if it were not for the page that they read and if it were not for the fact that the king realises that Mordecai has not been honoured. The king is the first to speak in verse 6. He's the king. <laughs> Before Haman can get his request in, with a smile, I wonder whether the king slaps Haman on the back and he asks the most delicious question, doesn't he? What should be done for the man the king delights to honour? Notice that the king doesn't name the person that he's wanting to bestow honour on, but Haman's head is so big that he thinks to himself, who would the king want to honour more than me? The king's question makes him salivate. And he completely forgets why he's come to see the king. He's now in dream world. And doesn't he lay it on thick for the king? All the while imagining that everything he's saying is going to come to him. Haman apparently is so excited here. It's not so clear in the English. In, in the NIV here, the word for is added at the beginning, verse 7. In the original language, actually, there's no royal etiquette or courtesies. Haman is so surprised and so shocked that he literally repeats what the king has just said. The man the king delights to honour, eh? <laughs> and then he gets into his... It doesn't make sense in the original. It's like he just repeats the king and then he says, I'll tell you what, you should get a robe. Not just a really good one, but a really great one. In fact, one that you yourself have worn. And then find a really great horse, one that you've ridden. In fact, put a crown on the horse as well so that everyone will know that it's really one of yours. And then, for the, I mean, when's he going to stop? Then, for the cherry on the cake, pick one of your most senior, loyal princes and have them lead this man, you know, the one the king <laughs> delights to honour, wink, around the city. And yes, get this noble prince to cry out as he leads him around the city, Here's the man the king delights to honour. 
Haman can hardly contain his excitement. And don't we get here, by the way, a little insight into what Haman really wants. It's not money, is it? It's not wealth or property. It's not even power. He already, in a sense, has all of that. What he really longs for is prestige, reputation, honor, adulation. It's one thing to dine with the king and queen. He wants to feel like he's the king. Even if just for a few hours. In verse 10, the king says, brilliant, Haman, you're a genius, my friend. Go and get the horse. Get the robe. Put the crown on the horse. But the sting in the tail is, of course, that none of this is for Haman, but for who else? Mordecai, the Jew. Haman's jaw must have hit the palace floor so hard that you'd be worried about the floor. The honour that he had so thrillingly visualised as, as his own with one word becomes the worst possible, embarrassing, shameful humiliation. The author doesn't even have to spell it out for us. In verse 11, there's just one verse where the author just narrates what happened. He, d he doesn't have to spell it out for us. And we mustn't forget here that everyone in the royal court is aware of this rivalry. We'll see that in a minute. That by now, they all know what Haman's been doing overnight, building a spike to impale this very Mordecai on. And here he is a few hours later, slowly trudging along, leading his enemy on the royal horse and trying somehow to shout and whisper at the same time. How do you do that? Here's the man, the king delights to honour. How do you shout and whisper at the same time? When it's all over in verse 12, Haman scurries home. He covers his head. This is what people did when they'd lost a loved one. They, they covered their head in grief. He rushes home in utter shame because his pride has been dealt a fatal blow. A couple of quick things to note here. First, you do wonder, don't you, what Mordecai made of all of this? <laughs> well, when Haman shows up and says, um, come with me, please, what's going on? The author doesn't say, in verse 12, Mordecai simply goes back to his usual place at the king's gate. But he must surely sense the irony that his greatest enemy has just been commanded to bless him. And do, does that raise for Mordecai hope of deliverance? Somehow, something's going on here. Secondly, just at the end of chapter 6, when Haman gets home, it's really noteworthy that his wife and friends change their tune. Only the previous evening, don't forget, they'd suggested him building the gallows, 
enjoy the party. But now even they are convinced that Haman cannot win. You, you're, you'll come to ruin. What a difference a day makes. And then in verse 14, while they're still doing the aftermatch uh, chat and picking over the bones of what's happened, the, 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 uh, the king's officials come, and there's even a sense of haste in this. They come and they hurry him away to the banquet that Esther had prepared. So thirdly, the banquet. Here, I want us to notice that there's two different pleas here. This banquet is the end for Haman. But don't forget, there are actually two different people here who plead for their life. There are two different pleas here. First, it's going to be Esther. By the end, it will be Haman. But let's unpick briefly what happens here. The king, by now, seems very anxious to know what is on Queen Esther's mind. She didn't say anything at yesterday's banquet. She just said, can we have another one tomorrow? And I think you get the sense that the king is... This is now the third time, actually, the king has asked her, and she still hasn't revealed her mysterious request. Perhaps Esther's encouraged in verse 2 with the intimate way that the king addresses her, Queen Esther... What is your petition? And what is your request? It's kind of a double question, isn't it? What's your petition? What's your request? And so we come to verse 3, which is the climax, in a sense, of all the tension. This is it. How will Esther frame her response? I want to pause for a minute here for us to understand how unbelievably delicate this moment is. And here's why. Don't forget that the king himself had agreed to Haman's decree. Remember them sitting drinking at the end of chapter 2 as best buddies, having a pie. The king is not innocent in this plot. And Haman is also the king's most trusted official, his closest advisor, his second in command, possibly even his closest friend, if kings have friends. So in this moment, the three of them, as they drink, Esther has to find a way to expose Haman and accuse him without incriminating the king. Can you see how delicate that is? But she's also taking a colossal risk here because the decree to annihilate the Jews is still in force. And she's going to confess here for the first time that she's a Jew, a Jewess. If the king reacts badly to this and sides with Haman, who is possibly his best mate, she's dead. The line she takes is a model of tact and wisdom First of all, she cleverly picks up the king's double question. What's your petition? What's your request? And she replies, my petition is this. Save my life. 
And my request is this, spare my people as well. So the queen is in danger. That makes the king, he's got to respond to that, hasn't he? But secondly, somehow, this is also mysteriously bigger than just her. Thirdly, Esther then goes on to explain that her people have been sold. Notice that she conveniently omits to say that it was the king that had accepted the bribe. Her people have been sold and they face destruction, slaughter and annihilation. That is virtually word for word what the decree said in chapter 3. And then finally, Esther is very gracious in almost apologizing, and she implies that she's only got the king's best interests at heart. Whoever is behind this awful plot has not only endangered the queen, but has insulted the king. You know, O king, that I would never trouble you with something trivial, but this is an outrage. She's so very clever in concealing the identity of the person behind the plot. Haman, I mean, talk about getting hot under the collar. He must be thinking, where is this going on? Now, it, it is very striking, isn't it, that the king can't even remember the details of the decree that he himself has agreed to. But he does sense that this is terrible and his concern for Esther kindles his furious anger and his reply to Esther is almost like machine gun fire in the original. The, the English is a little bit more wordy but it, essentially the king erupts in anger and he says who is he? Where is he? How dare he? That, that's basically the gist of what the king says. Esther Here's the moment. Here's the moment. Esther raises her trembling finger and she points at the now cowering Haman and actually with equal machine gun fire, she, she essentially says in the original, the man, the enemy, the foe, it's this vile Haman. For Haman, a bad day just got a whole lot worse. The author tells us two things very quickly in verse 6 and 7. The second part is that the king is so furious that he just storms out into the garden. But just in case we wouldn't know which one of them the king is angry with, if the narrator didn't say this, we'd be thinking, is he angry with Esther or is he angry with Haman? We don't but the narrator leaves us in no doubt that Haman knows. <laughs> then Haman was terrified. His bubble has burst. His dream has become a nightmare. But let's just think about the king here first for a moment. What does the king do here? Can he punish his closest official for doing something that he himself has approved? This conflict has gone on under the king's nose and he's backed himself 
into a terrible corner here. On the one hand, he's agreed to annihilate and destroy the Jews without really realising who it is. But then now he's also sent Mordecai, the Jew, around the city on his horse being praised. He's, he's kind of backed himself into a corner. And the king is shell-shocked now to discover that his beloved queen is also Jewish. He needs to wake up here, isn't he? He's been betrayed by his closest friend. For the first time in the story, can the king decide to do something without someone else telling him what to do? There's no one in the garden. (laughs) He storms out in a rage. What on earth is he going to do next? But then what about Haman? He can't follow the king into the garden, can he? But if he leaves the banquet, it's going to look like he's trying to escape. So he, he can't cut and run. His problem now, though, is that to be alone with the queen was, was actually totally illegal. He's in an impossible situation, and in his terror, he decides in verse 7 that his least worst option is to plead with Esther for his life. I wonder if you can see the irony in this moment. The man who wanted to kill all the Jews because one man refused to bow to him now finds himself bowing before a Jewess to beg for his own life. But here's the even greater irony, is that this mistake gives the king a way out of his dilemma. As the king returns into the room, the king cries out, and will he even molest the queen in my own house? I, I don't think for one minute that the king thought that Haman was assaulting the queen. But what is happening is that this gives him the perfect opportunity to condemn Haman without admitting any liability of his own. So Haman here in this one banquet has heard Esther's true accusation, but now his fate is sealed by the king's false accusation. And the greatest irony in this whole story is the fact that having falsely accused the Jews of things that they weren't doing, Haman ends up being impaled on his own spike for the one thing he didn't actually do. Haman's head is covered again, this time to denote the death sentence. And there's a lovely, can we call it lovely? There's a lovely comedy moment. Harbona, one of the court officials, just happens to point out, (coughs) um, actually, Haman's built a spike overnight and he was about to impale Mordecai on it, the one who was loyal to you. And Haman's thinking, thanks, mate. And the king immediately impale him on it. You, you, you even wonder at the end whether even the other court officials are sick of bowing down to Haman. And they're actually glad to be able to dob him in. What a difference a day makes. Now, what can we take Learn from this incredible 
verse. I want to wrap up with three quick things. First of all, I want to say, be warned. This story is, first of all, surely a window into what one writer calls the soul of the evil. Does not Haman show us that the love of power is corrosive? And the evil, in a sense, will always end up overreaching and eating and destroying itself. We're not court officials. We don't, we're not kings and queens. But is there not a truth here that we are not designed as human beings to love ourselves at the expense of other people? We are created by God in his image to be generous and outward-looking, not self-centered and proud and arrogant. And I think we should notice, too, how utterly blind evil is. Haman, he's just in a dream world, isn't he? His, His pursuit of prestige and adulation blinds him to how much it's destroying him and his sin is like a boomerang he thought he would be happy he thought he could get away with it but it just came straight back and hit him in the face he tried to dig a hole for someone else but fell straight into the hole himself he thought he was invincible And in trying to destroy Mordecai, he only actually succeeded in destroying himself. Like Haman, we can perhaps try and hide our true selves from one another. But we can't hide in the end from God, who sees all and who will, I quote from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, God who will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. The God who judges all things perfectly wisely and will bring all of our evil to justice at his appointed time. So the first thing is that Haman's tragic end should warn us about the blinding, self-destructive power of evil. So, be warned. Secondly, I want to say, be encouraged. This story, secondly, is surely also a window into the sovereignty of God over all of life. Oh, you've had a sneak preview there, haven't you? I think the narrator here is deliberately crafting this story to point us away from human heroes and human ingenuity to another power at work. You know when 
in great stories, the climax of the story, the pivot point of the story, is when the hero confronts the villain and triumphs. We've already pointed out that the middle verse of this whole book is chapter 6, verse 1. And actually, the hero confronts the villain after that. The centre of the book points us away from human heroes. And on one level, it's all so ordinary, isn't it? Little details, sleepless nights, mundane events that happen all the time. But it's asking us a subtle question, isn't it? Who is really in control? One writer humorously suggests that any old deity could do a miracle every now and again. But only the living God revealed to us by himself in his word is so great and so powerful that he can work without miracles through the ordinary events of billions of human lives through millennia of time to accomplish his eternal purposes and ancient promises. Only the living God can work extraordinary things in the ordinary details. We do realise, of course that this is so hard for us because not all of our circumstances are nice ones. These believers in this story had to endure some real agonies and they shed real tears. They had real anxieties. Esther and Mordecai had to wait for years for this great reversal to happen. We too experience disappointments, bereavements, broken relationships, serious illness and all kinds of other things. None of these things are good. But we are assured that even in the worst of life circumstances, God is working to fulfill his perfect promises. And that, as one writer puts it, The path to the joy God promises may wind through the swamps of suffering and despair. Can I say that again? The path to the joy that God promises may wind through the swamps of suffering and despair. Be encouraged that our great hope in facing painful or threatening circumstances is ultimately in the promises of God that he makes to us as we live in this world. We sang, oh, sing hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah. Now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. Lastly, be confident. Be confident. There's a little clue there in that song. Now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. The question is, be, be confident. What in? <laughs> what in? What I mean by that is that this story is finally also surely a window into the big salvation story of the whole world. So here's the thing. Asto Mordecai experienced a slow build-up to a great reversal 
that happened in 24 dramatic hours. And I think this points us to an even greater climax that also has built up in human history over many years and then happened dramatically on another amazing day. We don't live in the ancient Persian Empire, but when we think about it, neither do we live in the Garden of Eden either, do we? One writer suggests that we live, all of us, in the exile of history with a sentence of death hanging over every one of us. It can feel subjectively that God is absent or unseen and yet objectively in the big story of human history too, what a difference a day makes. Centuries, centuries of waiting are followed by the birth of a baby in Bethlehem. And that birth is followed by 30 years of nothing to write home about, obscurity, in Nazareth. That 30 years was followed then by three years of public ministry. And the climax of that three years of public ministry was hours of agony on a Roman cross. And this broken world was turned upside down. In some ways, all of these were ordinary events occurring in a world that seems indifferent and hard, and yet actually at the same time, totally extraordinary. Because in the larger story too, God has decisively intervened in real human history to bring about an extraordinary deliverance. We might well sing about the cross of Jesus with Diana Ross, what a difference a day makes. There's a little note at the end of chapter 7, I don't know if you spotted it, where the narrator tells us that the king's fury subsided. The crisis was over, the queen is safe, the villain is dead, but here's the thing. This great reversal in Esther, what happens is that the truly guilty one dies instead of the innocent one, Mordecai. And we all cheer. The incredible difference with the larger story is that it's actually the innocent one, Jesus, who willingly dies for the guilty ones to save us from sin and death and hell because of that 24 hours in human history that climaxed in the death of Jesus, the destiny of God's believing people has been totally reversed from condemnation to forgiveness, from death to life, from sorrow to joy, from hell to heaven. And friends, surely this means that even in our darkest days, even when life seems difficult and dark, nothing can separate us from his love. Because actually there's no Haman anymore who could ever destroy us in an ultimate sense. 
Let this story be a warning then to all of us that self-seeking evil can never win. And let it also be an encouragement to us and a comfort to us that God is working his extraordinary purposes out in the ordinary details of our ordinary lives. And let this story point you to the much bigger and greater story of salvation and draw you like a huge, great big magnet to put your whole confidence in Jesus, the unconquerable saviour who wins for us the greatest reversal of all. What a difference a day makes. Let's uh, pray, shall we? And then we're going to sing. Father, we pray that your word would do us good, as it always does. We, we pray that we would indeed be warned and encouraged and that you would draw us to put our confidence not in something else that doesn't last but in Jesus your beautiful unconquerable and lovely son we thank you for that 24 hours that one day in human history where the greatest reversal of all happened we thank you for the salvation that Jesus brings and offers to each one of us. We pray that you would help us to trust him with all of our hearts. And we ask it for his glory and for our good. In his name, amen.